Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our featured guest will be Dr. Jeff Berger. He's the medical director of Guest House, the National Catholic Addiction Treatment Center for priests, deacons, and religious located in a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. We're going to be talking about medical marijuana. Your hosts and today's guests, actually, are all members of the Catholic Medical Association, and we are committed to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and practice of medicine. And if you want to learn more about who we are and what we represent, you can go to our website, www.cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. And as we always lead off the show, we're going to talk a little bit about some recent medical news. And I saw something that should bode well for the medical establishment and the care of patients in our country. And that is that in recent years, medical school enrollment is up 29%. That's impressive because they're always... You know, talking about the physician shortage, especially as the baby boomers get older, more people require medical care. We don't have enough doctors to really go around. So that's encouraging, right? It it is encouraging. Uh, So you've got this whole uh, pathway to medicine. It's almost like an assembly line. It's not, but you have to go through a number of steps so that a doctor who's trained and can see you as a patient comes out the end. And so first you're widening that part of part of the pipeline in the medical school. The problem is the next part of the pipeline isn't getting any wider, and that's the residency portion. Yes, the bottleneck, and that's, I think that could also present a problem, though, because if you graduate folks from medical school, most people nowadays have about $300,000 in medical school debt before they even get to residency. If there's not a slot, uh, you're really up a creek because you've got this this medical degree, but not the licensing process and the, the training necessary to practice, but you still get stuck with all the debt. Exactly. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card, and debt sure seems like jail. Yep, first-year enrollment at U.S. medical schools has increased by 29% since the year 2002, but the deans of medical schools are saying overwhelmingly that they're concerned about the availability of residency training slots in their state as well as in the country as a whole. That's not a good thing. And something else that wasn't included in this article that I'm quite aware of, especially as I study the different generations from baby boomers to Generation X to millennials, to the newest medical students, and that generation is being termed iGen, mm. like the I in iPhone or the I standing for Internet, Gen, capital G, small e-n, so the Internet generation. They don't want to work as many hours. And plus, as we know, that there are many more women physicians now than ever. In fact, I heard for the first time ever, women first-year medical students now outnumber men first-year medical students. And on a whole, women don't want to work as many hours as men. Why? Well, many of them rightly want to be mothers, so they're spending less time being physicians, more time being moms, which is a good thing for their children. But as far as medical care goes, there's less hours of care available per doctor. It definitely makes it tough from a workforce development standpoint where you may be cranking out more doctors, but if they're not working the same number of hours, you still have a net shortage. And from data, I've also seen millennials and now the upcoming iGen want to work less than, than we have been. I, I would say Andrew is definitely an exceptional millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I, in the greatest sense. Right? In the greatest <laughs> sense, yes, exceptionally great. I'm, I'm sure his wife, Veronica, would agree if she's listening. <laughs> Even if she's not listening, she'd probably hey, I'll take it. agree. Well, it's it's tough because there is such a push now to spend more quality time, look looking more at leisure time, time with families, which are all very important things. But it is tough because there there is only a certain number of doctors. And so to get everybody seen, you, most doctors traditionally, I think that the average hours have usually been 60, 70 hours a week for a regular doctor in practice, right. depending on specialty. But if, if the goal is to work 30 hours a week, man, I'd, I'd love to see one of those jobs. I've yet to seen a doctor job like that, <laughs> but I guess in theory. And something else in this report, it said that uh, medical schools that train DOs, doctors of osteopathy, and these days the big difference between doctors of osteopathy and medical doctors, MDs, is that DO schools train them how to do manipulation like a chiropractor would do. And they say that they train a more 
a whole person approach to medical care, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And in fact, MDs and DOs can be accepted into and trained in the same residencies. And when you're seeing a physician, there's really no reason to to choose one over the other, um, unless you want someone who also does manipulation, which I personally find quite helpful at times. Now, why is there a bottleneck with residency programs? It's because the funding comes primarily from the Medicare program, which is a federal program. So federal tax dollars are used to cover the salaries of these physicians who are what? They're providing a service for hospitals. So again, this is a breakdown in free market economics. It's more of a planned economy type of thing. So the hospital's getting the benefit of residence labor, yet somebody else is paying for it. And the numbers of residents is frozen at 1996 physician need levels. Well, we're 2018, and my last math said that was 22 years later, and there's been big changes in our country since then. There definitely has. Just just to give folks who, who may not be familiar a little bit of an overview of the process, you know, after high school, you have undergraduate, four years, medical school, four years, and then after that, residency, and that's what we're talking about, where residents will usually work about 80 hours a week, and they will be paid a salary for the first time ever, usually in the realm of about $50,000. So it's something less than a traditional doctor would make, but it's subsidized by the federal government rather than getting paid for the patients they're seeing. And currently, it costs about $12 billion, B, billion with a B, dollars a year to train residents in the United States, and of that $10 billion is provided by the federal government and Medicare. So could residency positions be increased? They could if the hospitals chose to do them, but they have to figure out a way to fund them. And perhaps one solution will be to put the onus on the hospitals who are getting the cheap or even free labor in some instances. But that's still above my pay grade. Uh, but this explains why there is a problem. For instance, in my own specialty of dermatology, there's a little over 300 dermatologists are trained a year, but there are probably over 1,000 openings for dermatologists. Even me as a Mohs surgeon, a subspecialty of dermatology, about 50 come out a year. Right now, there are 265 advertised openings for one. In primary care, I'm sure there's, there's a glut of openings, but definitely not a glut of new residents who are trained. That's, that's the biggest thing is getting somebody all the way through the, the educational pipeline. And uh, you're pointing out a very good point that right now it's, it's still not adding up. So hopefully something can be done about that. And in an op-ed in the um, in New York Times, I don't know how long ago this was, but somebody said that we have 43 female physicians and 27% or 43% of female physicians, 27% of male physicians working part-time of 32 hours a week or less. And probably 20, 30 years ago, those numbers were, were much lower. Well, let's move on to Andrew's patented tip of the day for preventive medicine. Yes, I have got another wonderful, actually I'm combining two today, as we're getting through all of the recommendations from the USPSTF. There's a lot of them that naturally fit together in these two. Uh, one, one deals with adults and one deals with pediatrics, but the recommendation is to screen for major depressive disorder. And it doesn't really say how often, but just that it should be done. And this recommendation comes from 2016. Let's go for it. Depression is a horrible thing that robs people of uh, joy, and often it rolls out into physical health. Well, it's actually kind of piggybacking off of your medical training information, Tom. Uh, I saw a statistic that uh, at, during medical training, up to 85% of medical students are clinically depressed. They'd meet criteria. I believe that. I mean, with the burnout statistics, but burnout is usually after de depression criteria have been met. That, that, that could be actually another news article. I saw the, the course of medical training. People get more depressed as they go through. And so. isn't that the kind of physician you want to see to take care of you? <laughs> That's scary, yes. right? Well, lift, lift me up here, Andrew. Well, I've, got, I've got a couple of good things in, in regard to hopefully we can help some folks. My top three things that you need to know is, number one, without screening, it's estimated that half of folks with depression go undetected. Wow. So it's, it's very important that people screen, and if, if you think you might have depression, to bring it up with your doctor. Some of the symptoms that you might want to watch for would be symptoms of mood imbalances, 
cognitive symptoms like not being able to think as clearly or as quickly as you used to or you feel like you should, neurovegetative symptoms. Neurovegetative. I think our audience needs to have that unpacked. <laughs> I, I, tr I tried it in Scrabble. It, Webster wouldn't do it, okay? So <laughs> Webster wouldn't go with that. But neurovegetative would be, you can think of motor symptoms where someone would be speaking slower than they really should be. Yes. Or speaking very fast, pressured speech, very anxious. And, and as a result, they could also be either fidgety or very slow movements. Man, you're just dragging today. Got it. And that could be a symptom of depression or other even somatic symptoms. And I see this a lot in practice where people may have abdominal pain or chest pain or headaches. And you go through the normal workup and you try the medications that work for most people and nothing seems to help. A lot of times you can have physical manifestations of depression. And when you treat depression, the physical pain gets better. Yes. And it's it's something that a lot of patients find, uh, you know, this this can't be related to my my psychological health, but in, in reality it is. So there's there's a little of that. Um, number two is how, how should we figure out if someone's depressed? Well, there is a series of questionnaires called the PHQ questionnaires. My favorite ones are PHQ-2, two questions, and PHQ-9, <laughs> nine questions. And they're scoring systems that are readily available online. But the two main questions are, do you have little interest or pleasure in doing things, especially things that you used to take pleasure in, number one. And then number two, do you, do you ever feel down, depressed, or hopeless? And so uh, simply asking someone if they feel depressed, a lot of times they'll tell you. Yes. And so that's, that's one of the best ways to screen. They're so happy that you asked. <laughs> well, in, in truth, I think a lot of people just kind of suffer silently and they think that this is just a bad stretch. But if, if you can get help and you can get better, I think it behooves patients to do that. And I do have for number three a couple of recommendations of how people can improve depression. My favorite one to start with always is lifestyle. I, I recommend exercise daily, 30 minutes, sleep hygiene, which is a, a good topic to discuss, but basically regular sleep at the same time every day and getting at least seven to nine hours every day. We talked in a previous episode about yes. a gratitude journal, which I think would be a wonderful thing. You write down three things every day you're grateful for. Yes. And then I, I have noticed clinically that people with depression, they are very inward looking. They're, they can't hardly think about anything other than their own problems. And so one of the things I routinely prescribe for patients is volunteering. Yes. You know, go talk to your church or, you know, really any charity of your choice, but get out there and help others. You know, so that's all lifestyle. There's also a role for counseling and medications, and, and those would be very helpful for people with severe depression that doesn't respond to lifestyle changes. But we do know that the median time of recovery for one episode of depression is about 20 weeks. Wow. So we do expect this, this is not going to be a one- or two-week thing, and this is apart from grieving. This is just folks going through no particular life stress that become depressed. And so it's, it's not something that's fixed overnight. And so if you feel like you're suffering from depression, please do reach out to someone, especially a healthcare provider, who really could get you feeling more yourself quicker. Thank you, Andrew. And before the break, our medical trivia question of the day is, many of us grew up hearing about the concept of a base tan. You're all pasty white from winter and you're about to go on a beach vacation in March or early April, and you're supposed to get that base tan to prevent a nasty sunburn, right? In fact, one online article recommends to do this that you'll slowly go in daily over three to four weeks, crank up the time in the tanning bed from five to 20 minutes to get that base tan. My question, how effective is a base tan at preventing sunburn? And you can put a number to it. Would a base tan be like a sunscreen SPF number of, you know, you can get sunscreen in 15, 30, 50, 100. What number sun protection factor, that is how many times longer can you stay in the sun because of that base tan than you could have stayed in the sun without getting a burn without the base tan? How many times longer? We'll have that at the end of the show. This is Dr. Doctor. We'll be back after the break. We're back on Dr. Doctor with our featured guest, Dr. Jeff Berger. Jeff, 
is an expert in internal medicine and particularly addiction medicine, which he has been practicing since 1983. He's the medical director of Guest House, which is in Lake Orion, Michigan, near Detroit, which is the National Addiction Treatment Center for priests, deacons, and religious from around the country. Jeff, welcome to our show. Thank you. Today we want to talk about uh, a subject that has been quite commonly brought up, and that is so-called medical marijuana. Why is there such an interest in that now, Jeff? There's, I think, a number of reasons why there's an interest in it. One is because um, it's had very little scientific study. And number two, um, as experience in Colorado certainly has shown, there's a wealth of people waiting to uh, for marijuana to be legalized so that they can make a ton of money out of it, <laughs> I think is the other, frank, quite frankly, the reason. The third reason, I think, is because it's, there's been a tremendous sales job done by organizations like Normal, which uh, are, are pushing the idea that marijuana is harmless and, and uh, to say otherwise is uh, foolishness. Very good. That's very succinct. And, and, you know, just to go to a basic level, what is marijuana? And then what do we mean by medical marijuana? So I really... I'll answer the second question first. There really isn't any difference between medical marijuana and marijuana. It, it, marijuana is a, is a, it actually is some part of the plant, uh, depending on where you want to get it from, of the plant cannabis sativa. And what's in marijuana is of interest. Now, it, if you look at opiates, all opiates originally were were derived from opium, and opium was discovered, uh, you know, that's prehistoric. Right, the poppy um, family. Right. In the 1800s, they got the idea to try and isolate whatever alkaloids were in opium. And the first one they came up with was morphine in the, in the 1830s. Right. Um, they kept searching. There were altogether 20 alkaloids found. And the second one, the only other one that had any use as a pain reliever was codeine. Um, but there, so that that's the kind of thing that you're dealing with, where there's more than one potentially useful compound in a plant. In marijuana, there's over 80 what they call cannabinoids, or chemical compound, compounds that are all very similar to each other and all have potential actions in the human body. So marijuana couldn't really be thought of as a medicine, per se, because when we take a medicine, we're taking one chemical compound. Sometimes there's a couple combined. Marijuana is like having 80 or more chemical compounds combined. Is that right? Yes, it is. Although medical marijuana may have be more standardized. For example, Sativix, which has been produced in Europe and is marketed in Canada as well, does have defined concentrations of certain alkaloid or certain compounds, certain cannabinoids within marijuana. Okay. So if there were any difference between the two, that would be it. So... Dr. Berger, marijuana is legal in many states now, especially for medical purposes, isn't it? Yes. Now, I, I'm from Michigan originally, and I remember during my training when, when it was legalized, they gave a prescription card for the medical marijuana. One, one of the things that struck me, this, this drug that was designed for people with terrible cancer pain and things of that nature, that the average age of the cardholder was 24 years old. Um, I I am trying to figure out what benefit uh, are people looking for for medical marijuana? What are they hoping to benefit from? Um, well, the common things that are talked about are pain relief, and then the thing that was pushed in the media, for, although I haven't seen it been pushed recently, is a whole idea of certain neurological conditions, for example, muscle spasticity or epilepsy. So those are the major things that people would be talking about in terms of uh, medical marijuana. And, you know, you sparked something in my head when you said that um, medical marijuana is, and I think of it as a pharmaceutical grade, that's available. But here, like I live in Michigan, and medical marijuana is simply marijuana that's sold with some kind of legal supervision or monitoring. So you're right, that kind of medical marijuana it can contain anything. So the fact that it's a medical marijuana just means that it is designed or not really designed, it's the same drug, the same plant that is being smoked or ingested, uh, but it's just intended for a medical purpose by the patient. That's correct. What kind of research has been done to support the use of you know, whole marijuana uh, for any medical condition? 
You know, there's a, a bunch of research out. Um, I don't think that there's enough out to really give good, because most of it's not good-grade research that's been done. And the research that has been done has not shown any outstanding benefit for marijuana. For example, in terms of of uh, epilepsy control, there is some, but that's where you sort of get into some of the, the differences in, in in marijuana. There there are different cannabinoids in marijuana. Uh, the first one isolated was actually cannabinol, which has very little activity or users talked about much these days. Uh, Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, on the other hand, is a psychoactive form and is one of the parts, one of the f- parts of marijuana. It is probably the major part that it, uh, accounts for its addictive potential. And people might it know has, that as THC, correct? Right, or Delta-9 THC. Okay. And that's, that part has some action in terms of the things that I talked about and other things, too. Um, however, there's another compound present in marijuana called cannabidiol. And cannabidiol was worked with in the 1970s. It has absolutely no addicting properties. In other words, in that sense, it's not psychoactive. It is the probably the part of marijuana, marijuana that is giving the major benefit in terms of, for example, protection from schizophrenia, protection against seizures that has use for muscle spasticity. Um, those are, cannabidiol is probably the compound that is giving the major benefit from the plant. Is, is there much research being done in that regard? I know. That compound was just recently legalized here in Indiana, and now it's it's making the news quite a lot down here. Yeah, so, so you can buy CBD. In fact, we had somebody come in using CBD oil a month ago. Um, so you can get it in many states, I'm sure, um, just over the counter without a prescription. And, you know, that's that's a problem. If you look at the compounds that are in, this, um, in Schedule One and the DEA list of controlled substances, most of those things wound up there because they did not have adequate medical investigation and screening before they were reached the public. Um, heroin is a perfect example of that. It's diacetylmorphine. It was marketed by Bayer Chemical Company in the late 1800s as a cough suppressant, and within 10 or 15 years had led to uh, such an opiate epidemic that it led to a, a tremendous international effort to control the sale and distribution and possession of, of certain substances, including specifically heroin. Where, when they con, when they concocted the schedule back in the 50s, that immediately went into Schedule One. It's not that heroin might not have some potential, but that it it was marketed directly to to the public. You can get advertisements. You can see advertisements that were done at the time in the late 1800s. And it bypassed entirely the whole idea that any compound which might be used in a medicinal purpose should first be vetted, so to speak, by the medical profession, the pharmaceutical profession. Uh, and that's what I'm afraid is, is going to happen to things like CBD uh, and potentially even uh, Delta 9 THC itself. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio as we interview Dr. Jeff Berger about medical marijuana. Now, Jeff, when you talk about Schedule 1, that refers to uh, controlled substances that are legal under no circumstances. Is that right? Yes, and, and doing research on controlled substances is really difficult. Uh, getting the, the proper authorization to do any kind of scientific research is very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why there's a huge push. And if you look, um, you can just Google, Google it and come up with tons of medical um, organizations that are pushing for removal of marijuana from Schedule One so that adequate research can be done on it. Um, so is this unprecedented that we in legislatures across the country are legalizing a Schedule One substance because we don't know much about it scientifically Yet, politically, they're saying, oh, go ahead and take it, even though we don't know the truth about it. Yeah, and this has been happening for about 20 years. When it was first legalized, I think in California, uh, they decided not to, they, they decided to use mar- medical marijuana, and it was still illegal on the federal level. Very, very fascinating. So, you know, if we talk about just the chemicals THC and the cannabidiol or CBD. 
Do you think it makes more sense to do research with the separate chemicals or with the plant as a whole or marijuana as a whole? I think my view would be marijuana as a whole because, there's, there's, again, there's over 80 cannabinoids there. So, you know, what's lurking inside the plant, so to speak? Um, this is very different. So this is something new because, again, if you use opium as, as an example, um, you know, that was done way before any regulation was put into place. But nothing was found in opium other than that was useful in analgesia, other than codeine and uh, morphine. But here we're talking about a plant where there may be something that's useful inside of it uh, that is not addicting, whereas part of it is addicting. So you think that research with THC, because that's the addictive part of it, should not be done further? Oh, that's a difficult one, Tom. I, the, um, the one place where THC might have some benefit is in wasting syndrome. Ah, um, yes. In, in other words, the so-called munchies are a good side effect. E, that's right. And, and here, in, when people have wasting syndrome, it actually does improve their quality of life. Um, so th- that, I would, I would hate to put that off the table altogether. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess, Dr. Berger, one of the things that is probably occurring to a lot of our listeners, and, and I've tried to think about myself, is, you know, when when there's a push for legalization of medical marijuana, is that something that we should be in favor of or against? Because on the one hand, it seems like some of these organizations like Normal are pushing it primarily as a stepping stone to legalizing it for recreational use. But then on the other hand, we, we haven't really had the ability to do research on it, so we don't know if it could be helpful. What, yeah, what are your I, thoughts on that? Well, here, here are my thoughts. If you take 100 people and give, let them all, give them or prescribe marijuana to all of them, 11% of them will develop an, an addiction from it. This has nothing to do with willpower. It has nothing to do with you know, taking the drug off the street and putting it in some kind of medically acceptable form. It has nothing to do with doctors prescribing or not. It has nothing to do with people who are bad people. It has to do with the way uh, Delta 9 THC works in the brain. We know that 11% of people will develop an addiction. If those people are under the age of 13, 17% of them will develop an addiction to marijuana. So this is a, you know, addiction is a horrible thing. I've been dealing with it for 35 years. And I've seen families destroyed, people's lives destroyed, uh, and untold pain and suffering from this. And this is not something I think that anybody should take lightly. Uh, I, I just don't see the reason for pushing ahead, certainly with, without you know, really, really good research that would say otherwise, with a drug that's going to produce addiction. We've seen what's happened with the opiate epidemic. You know, we have four people dying every hour at this point in the United States from drug over, from uh, from uh, opioid overdose. Jeff, this is fascinating. We're going to take a quick break and come back for some more on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. We are here today with Dr. Jeff Berger. Doctor, I... I've recently seen some literature coming even out of the AMA that people are suggesting that potentially medical marijuana is the way to solve the opioid crisis, which we alluded to at the end of the last segment. In working with people with addictions, what would you say to that advice? Well, you know, it's, it's the, I think there's an old saying that goes, if you don't know history, then uh, you're dooming yourself to repeat it. <laughs> yes. And actually, this is not, this is using one addicting drug to treat another addicting another addiction is not a, a new concept at all. Uh, the first person to try that was uh, Sigmund Freud <laughs> back in the early 1900s. Uh, and at that time, he decided to uh, try and treat depression with cocaine, uh, which he just loved, uh, <laughs> and found that he, the, of course, it was widely accepted, but it had some terrible side effects like suicide. Oh. Uh, so the the second end addiction, and so then he thought maybe he could treat another addiction with it, so he 
one of his most famous patients uh, was Dr. William Halstead, oh. who was at the head of surgery at surgery, Johns Hopkins yes. University. And he had become a heroin an opiate addict. Uh, and so doc, Dr. Freud treated him with cocaine. And uh, what we got as a result of that was the first cross-addicted <laughs> opiate addict in the, in the oh. United States. Wow. Yeah, so this this idea, it just doesn't work. I mean, how Dr. Halstead died a miserable death, and he was dishonored at the time of his death because of his addictions. Um, but working, you know, the lesson which we should have taken from that and, and kept in our consciousness is that you can't use one addicting drug to free somebody of another addiction. It, it doesn't work. Now, many people today use marijuana for pain. There's many pro football players saying that it's the only thing that helps them. What is the truth about the pain-reducing abilities of marijuana and whether there's anything else that can treat it? Well, again, this reminds me of the opiate, the opiate thing that we've been through, where I can't tell you how many patients came into my office saying the only thing that helped their pain was their Vicodin, Lortab, Oxycodone, you, you named the opiate. And in reality, um, in the work that I do now, I have the opportunity to take people off of opiates. And you know what? I have one woman who's been on, uh, one uh, consecrated religious who's been on opiates for the last 20 years. She was, uh, a year and a half ago, her doctor got uh, frightened by all of the pressure to get people off of opioids and sent her to a treatment center where they switched her from Vicodin to Suboxone. So over the past year what and a half... What is Suboxone? Been, Suboxone is a, another opioid. It's buprenorphine. Oh, okay. Uh, with naloxone in it. Oh, got it. Uh, so it, yeah. it, it has some... Uh, explain for our audience how that would be different from what she was taking. Yeah, so Suboxone uh, is not as euphorogenic as, uh, for example, Vicodin or morphine. So they don't get the high? Not as much of a high. That, and that's an important key point, not as much of a high. Um, and it's, it, because it's prescribed, of course, you get it from your doctor's office, which takes it off the street. But I can tell you, if you, anybody ever tries to stop Suboxone, they're in for one miserable time. Uh, so, so they really endure a big service. Yeah, so what you've got then is a, a physician becoming a supplier, so a drug supplier. Um, I tried that time. I went that route, and, and it was miserable for me and miserable for my patients, and I got out of it and said I'd never do that again. So let's go to this question. Are there other things, medicines, that can be used to treat pain besides marijuana, or are there some places that is the only thing that's going to help someone's pain? Um, can I conceive of one case where it's going to be the only thing that treats somebody's pain? Yes, I can um, how, how big a percentage is that? I would say less than 0.001%. Again, what we're doing now in taking people off of opiates and treating pain, you, you need to use other alternatives. There's lots of other things to treat pain other than a pharmaceutical. So, in other words, there is virtually always an option to marijuana to treat pain. Absolutely. Do you think that if marijuana did not produce the high that it produces, there would be this degree of interest in using it as a medication? No, I don't think so. So, so in other words, a lot of what's driving this is people that just want to get it in their hands and in their systems legally for the high, not for the medical benefits. Well, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. I'm not if saying all. what happened here in, Medi in, in Michigan, once they passed the medical marijuana law, you should have seen the billboards go up. Come on to my office for $95 and get your medical marijuana card. So you can become a, a legal drug dealer. Yep. And, and a person then can legally become addicted to a substance. Legal addiction. Wonderful. What about CBD, cannabidiol, which you said has no addictive potential? Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea that it's now available over the counter in many places in the country? I don't think it's a good idea at all. Because? because what's going to happen is that people are going to get into trouble using it, and there's going to be so much, so many side effects and morbidity and possibly some mortality from it being used improperly without any knowledge 
that it's going to go it's going to hit schedule 1 just like just like Kratom did recently. I think Andrew today told me he had a patient with that very story. Yeah, this this last week, you know, I I've actually seen two patients who are suffering side effects from over-the-counter non-prescription CBD oil. And I think one one of the troubles is, you know, it's it's not regulated, so we don't know exactly concentrations. It's recommended for for so many different things and there's really no supervision. So one one lady was becoming lightheaded and was at risk for falling. She had suffered falls in the past. The other lady developed a tremor that was new mm-hmm. onset. And so I, I think you bring up a very good point that without without the proper research, it's very difficult to recommend it. If you just joined us, we're talking on Doctor to Doctor or Doctor Doctor today with Dr. Jeff Berger about medical marijuana. Jeff as you said, marijuana is combined of 80-plus different chemicals, and some of them might have no addictive potential and be medically beneficial. What do you think is the most responsible thing for the medical research community to do with marijuana? You know, I'm a creative guy, and I can think of lots of alternatives, but if you ask me if anything that I think is anything is practical, I don't. I think my own opinion is it should be left where it is, and and uh, nothing done at the present time. And one of the reasons, Tom, I say that is is I don't think too many people are going to be harmed if we don't <laughs> develop medical marijuana or whatever else is in marijuana. <laughs> Miracle marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I think there's too much risk at this point in time for diversion, for people using a drug simply for the intoxicating effect of it. And uh, we can talk about that again some other time because intoxication means that you're surrendering your soul to something else other than your own reason. Yes. But but um, I think there's just too much risk out there at the present time and too many people uh, waiting to make a profit out of this. And I, the other thing is that I really don't know who would be... Uh, who would guard the guardian, so to speak? Who would be the person's that would be supervising this and, and trusted with uh, making sure that, that any research that was done was ethical, and that results were unbiased and fairly reported. I, I just don't know that we have the structure in our culture right now to do that. So, Dr. Berger, if it, if it was legalized for medical purposes as it is in Michigan, is that something that would be useful to you, or would you ever end up prescribing that to a patient? Never. Okay. And if... If a, a bishop in the state was trying to figure out what they should recommend to um, a legislature or a legislator asked you for advice on the medical marijuana laws, what would you say to them? I would say to them that I would not be in favor of of uh, pursuing research on medical marijuana at this time, given the current state of our culture. And does that mean legalization also? So you would recommend yes. against the legalization just of its availability. And you would probably even recommend against CBD oil being available over the counter as it is now. That's correct. You know, Dr. Berger, in, in your special role in dealing with folks who are addicted to things, if some of our listeners may be using marijuana and realize that they are addicted, what, what would you recommend or what have you had success with in helping folks with marijuana addiction? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. Um, there, there definitely is a uh, marijuana withdrawal syndrome, um, and part of that is impulsivity and irritability. So that can, those things can be dangerous uh, when people get un, into uncontrollable moods uh, in the withdrawal. I would recommend that they, they seek out uh, an addiction medicine specialist uh, somewhere in their area, and there are lots, lots of them in, in the United States at this point in time. Is there a website and that's trustworthy help. to find somebody? Was an addiction yeah, medicine? The American Society of Addiction Medicine has a, a list of people who at least have had uh, gone through a certification process, uh, and it is now a, a board certified as part of the American Board of Medical Specialists. So people there are, are are more likely to be trustworthy than anywhere else. American Society of Addiction Medicine. So that can be Googled. You can find that. Uh, this has been incredibly helpful, Jeff. And I think you brought up a very good point that when we are intoxicated, we lose control of our person, of our soul, and we put ourselves in danger. Uh, I don't think we can underplay how important that is. I don't think we can. Well, we hope to have you back on the show for other topics. I know that you're a wealth of information, but thank you. God bless you in your work, and uh, 
We hope to talk to you again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Andrew. And may God bless you and what you're doing, too. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Jeff. We're back with the last segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with the answer to the medical trivia question, which I'm sure you've been working on during that stunning interview with Dr. Berger on medical marijuana. And the short version of the question is this. How effective is a base tan at preventing sunburn, the kind of tan you would get over a three- to four-week period in a tanning bed? Andrew, did you have any guesses, or did you already know the answer to this? I I figured as much now that I'm looking at the answer, but uh, I figured it would not be especially helpful. Well, if we look at some, the SPF factor, that's the sun protection factor, which means if it would take you 10 minutes to get a sunburn, the sun protection factor is how many times longer it would take to burn. So a white, dry T-shirt, SPF factor, 7. So 70 minutes to burn. But if that white T-shirt is wet, the SPF drops to 3, which happens to be the same SPF factor you would get from going to a tanning bed for three to four weeks before your trip to Florida. So you can get as much protection by wearing a wet white t-shirt. Now that might not be that comfortable, and I'm actually not recommending that for sun protection, but what did you have to do to get that sun protection? That's a lot of damage to the skin. That's exactly right. You have to kill my favorite cell, the lowly keratinocyte. Yes, that is the cell that makes up 95% of the epidermis, the top layer of the skin. And so what happens is the sun gets through to the nucleus where our DNA lives. And DNA is what makes more copies of cells. Guess what? If you cause damage to the DNA, it breaks apart into little itty-bitty pieces. And some of those little itty-bitty pieces are warning signs to the keratinocytes that are still alive. And they tell the keratinocytes, whoa, we're being bombarded. Make more pigment. So you have to kill cells to send a signal to the living cells to make more pigment. So any tan is a sign of dead skin. And, and there's a cumulative factor throughout your life, isn't there, Tom? There certainly is because it typically takes more than one episode of damage to a cell to turn into skin cancer. And, of course, you get that whole wrinkled leather effect with which some people are sporting these days because they've done so much damage to their skin. They're damaging the collagen. Collagen is what makes up leather in cows or other um, animals we get leather from, that's why your skin tar- starts to look like leather. You're damaging down deep, way below the lowly keratinocyte, into the protein, the collagen, and the fibroblasts, the cells that make the collagen. Well, I think this is something to be considering, especially if you're a parent and you've got young children. If your children are coming back in and they're looking tan, that means that they are getting closer and closer to skin cancer every day. And they're going to look old before their time. So they're actually, I used to tell patients, you're paying to look old. And I used to joke uh, about having my young kids stand outside of tanning salons holding up large signs that say, thanks for helping put us through college. <laughs> and then they would say, oh, do your parents own the tanning salon? Oh, no, my dad operates on skin cancer. <laughs> so there's no such thing as a healthy tan unless it comes out of a bottle. Well, now I'd like to introduce a guest that we have on the line, Dr. Barbara Golder. She's an MDJD, that is, she's a lawyer and a doctor, and she's the new editor of the Catholic Medical Association journal, The Lineker Quarterly. Barbara, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for asking me. This is delightful. I'm glad to be here. Well, the Lineker Quarterly, that's not a, a title that someone would hear and say, I know exactly what that's about. Why is this journal called the Lineker Quarterly? The Lineker Quarterly is actually, a, it's kind of a, a an unusual name. It's named after Thomas Lineker, who was both a physician and a theologian in the time of St. Thomas More. In the time of the Renaissance, um, he was he was very well lettered in the arts as well as in the sciences, and certainly in the theological arts. And so he managed to bring together in his own person what the Lineker Quarterly tries to bring together in its in its content, and that is the the theological, the spiritual, the religious aspect of healthcare, along with really good information about the nuts and bolts of healthcare, which we, we were just talking about. 
And this has been around since 1932, and it's actually the oldest medical moral journal or ethics journal in the United States. Is that right? It is. It's, it's, um, it's the longest continuously published bioethics journal. Bioethics simply means bringing together the ethics and the medicine um, in the United States, and, and I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of it. And why did you decide it would be a good idea to seek being the editor of this journal? Because you just came on board several months ago, right? Right. Um, the previous editor, Dr. Dr. Williams, um, had retired, and they put out a call for people who thought they might be interested. And I've always been involved in bioethics in one way or another. It, it comes actually probably from having a law degree and a medical degree because it sort of puts those things together naturally. Yes. Um, one of the first one of the first articles I wrote in a law review uh, journal actually was based on Catholic bioethics. It was kind of interesting and that I wasn't Catholic at the time. So I've sort of I've sort of been fascinated by it my entire career because I think that the important thing about medicine is taking care of whole people. Yes. Their spiritual their spiritual side, their medical side, their physical side, all of that comes together. And bioethics gives you the opportunity to do that in a very real way. So when the call went out, I threw my hat in the ring and they chose me. Chose me and I, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Barbara, what, what types of articles do you look at uh, that will hopefully get published? What are some of the biggest topics and, and things that would be published in the journal? Well, we have a wide variety of articles. There's an editorial every month, which sort of takes a, a grand scheme of things, look at something that's going on. Um, it m might be abortion. It might be uh, palliative care. It might be medicine in general. There are all sorts of topics that come in there. We also have uh, very good articles about the science of medicine. There, there are some research, original research articles. Uh, with one of the ones that came out in a, a recent issue had to do with looking at ovulation as a sign of health, which is particularly important in a society that spends a lot of money suppressing ovulation or at least um, trying to in the birth control pill. So ovulation is really a sign of health and we're forgetting that. Uh, we're, we're trying to make a healthy body unhealthy with, with chemical contraception. So, so there are those kinds of articles. There are also reflective articles, spiritual articles. There are articles about the human aspect of, of medicine and medical issues. One of the most interesting one I've read in a long time is one that dealt with the effects of human trafficking and how, as physicians who take care of these women who've been rescued from human trafficking, how do we interact with them? How do we meet their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs? How do we deal with the psychological damage? How do we restore them to wholeness and, and health on, on every plane? It was a fascinating article. So we, we really pretty much cover the, the waterfront in the kinds of things we put in the journal, and I, I think that's important. There are very few places you'll see the breadth of topics that you'll see in the Lineker Quarterly. So most journals just cover one specific thing, neurology or general surgery. This would cover a breadth of topics. Barbara, is it only for doctors to read this or would other people find it interesting as well? I think really it is primarily for doctors. It is, after all, the, the Journal of the Catholic Medical Association. But I think other people would find things very interesting in there as well, especially the, the spiritual reflections. We had a, an article recently that uh, got a lot of attention, and, and it was a delightful article. It was about baptizing a patient in the ICU. One, oh, of, our, yes. one of our editorial board members um, put that out. Dr. Pia DiSoleni, who is the chancellor of the Archdiocese of Orange, had an article in our women's issue about is women's health really about health or is it about some sort of social and polit political agenda? Those kinds of things I think anybody can read and, and bring something from. So we're thinking about, or actually we've decided, we're going to have a new segment on the, the fourth quarter of Dr. Doctor shows coming up, which uh, the working title is The Lineker for Lay People. So Barbara, what do you think that this will look like as we meet on the air some of the authors? Well, what I hope it will look like, and that, you know, this is in the hands of the Holy Spirit, how this turns out. So, um, <laughs> but, but my request is that we are able to take some of the, these articles that may be a little more arcane, a little more physician-oriented, and bring them down to a level where, where patients can understand what's at stake. For example, you were just talking about skin cancer and the issues that go on with that. One of the 
one of the issues that I think a lot of people don't realize is one of the very common treatments for um, acne is a, a drug that requires that the patient be on birth control, which is just not an option for Catholic patients. And so what are the alternatives when the doctor says, I want you to take this drug and I want exactly. you to do this? And, you know, what are the alternatives? And I think we can create a well-educated lay public that can say, you know, no, you have to take my beliefs, my religious priorities into account when you're talking about treating me. And I think that's the goal here. And what uh, what are some of the pick one interesting article in the most recent edition that you think lay people would like to learn something about? Well, again, I think I, I would go to Dr. Disselani's article about is women's health care as it's being practiced really about women's health, or is it about some sort of different agenda? We, we just talked about the, the idea that ovulation is a sign of health in a woman of childbearing age. Why are we giving them drugs? to suppress ovulation. That doesn't make good sense in terms of health. Why are we treating fertility as a disease when it's not? And so I think that, that that's one, one article that leaps to mind. And Barbara, thank you so much. I know you're going to help uh, bring some of these authors to us, and we can even uh, release them as shorter podcasts just on the topic of the article to hopefully augment what you're doing with the Lineker. But here we are, physicians of the Catholic Medical Association who are working to uphold the science and practice of medicine as related to the Catholic faith. We are also trying to inspire physicians to imitate Jesus Christ. So signing off and thanking you for listening to Dr. Doctor, this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Malawi. signing off until next time. And please remember that your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow. So please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, bioethicist Father Ryan McCarthy will discuss embryo adoption and how we might ethically respond to the crisis created by in vitro fertilization. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.